Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, you're tuned to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, I have to welcome a very good morning to Penny Woodward. Morning, Penny. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Isn't it a beautiful... Aren't we having a beautiful weekend? It's we of, are. It's almost proper um, autumn weather now. When, it, when we had a day like this a couple of weeks ago, my thinking was that it was going to get really hot again. But... Maybe, maybe we've slipped into autumn and we're not going to have any of those, more well, of those horrible hot days. It's definitely darker when I get up yeah. in the mornings and it's, it's got that autumn feel to it, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. that cool, cool mornings even if yes. it's hot during the day. Yes, so, so yeah. it's... Fingers crossed. Absolutely. <laughs> and now all we need is rain. So <laughs> Desperately yes. still, yes. Yeah, abs- oh, for us, yeah, we got <clears throat> two millimetres or something um, mm. over the last week and a half. Mm. Um, I think some people got thunderstorms and got heavy rain and... Um, we're lucky, um, but yeah, other people. Just it's certainly bypassed me, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. fingers crossed. You know, it, it, it landed in the areas where people really, really, really needed it. You know, the farming areas and the bushfire areas and stuff. So. Yep. Yes. Oh well. <laughs> we move on. We do. <laughs> and we have to say a very good morning to Michelle Adler. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, listeners, and good morning, Penny. Good morning, Michelle. <laughs> Great to have you back in the studio. We haven't heard from you for a little while, so... No, I've been hiding out in Briagalong, which is somewhere between uh, Sale and Bairnsdale, also praying for rain, Penny. Yeah. Um, we got 12 millimetres, so maybe that naked dancing did some good, you know. <laughs> Um, but it is, it's been very dry. I think all of our gardens are suffering, yeah. mm. other than those people who were clever enough to plant native plants and um, and have maybe had a bit of respite. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mm. think it's just native plants, though. I mean, I think there are a lot of introduced plants that do well in dry conditions. I, it mm. always stuns me how well camellias do. I mean, I'm not a fan of, particularly of camellias, but when I moved into my garden, there were some beautiful camellias, and I've just left them there, and that, that was at the end of the 10-year drought. Mm. And they were still doing really well, and they're still doing really well, and I still don't water them, and they're amazing. Then um, grow, so, grow more camellias. Well, <laughs> if you like them, yes, by yes. all means. Yes. But, yeah, so there are, I, I, you know, I agree that there's some fabulous native plants. Native plants. It doesn't have to be just native. I, I guess I've got native plants on my mind at the moment. I was out at the Cranbourne Friends of Botanic Gardens, whom I'm... Um, ashamed to say that I've only just joined, um, but the gardens out there are, are really stunning. Oh, they really are beautiful, yeah. definitely. So yeah. I've I've had a bit of a native garden hit right. recently. <laughs> yes. yes, every time I go out there, I go out and come back and end up buying a couple more native. <laughs> <laughs> I think they've got a big plant sale coming up. You probably know about it already, Pam. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And how's the wetland stood up, Michelle? Our wetlands in Braggalong is almost empty. Is it? Mm, we really haven't had decent rains for now um, over two years. In fact, we went down to the wetland and uh, after those one of those 40-degree days, there was 40 eels that had died in oh, the bottom. Oh, goodness. So we just went, well, those are going to be fossils of the future, you know, in mm. the bottom of a peat bog, I suppose. Yes. And their skeletons were there and, and a little bit of the smell was still there. But... Um, um, you know, that's just how things are. Things come, things go. You mm. have to mm. accept that uh, there are good times and mm. there are sometimes not so good times. Mm. This is one of the not so good times as far as um, water 
is yes. concerned. Well, yes. in the south, yeah. you know, look what's happening up north. It's we have such a variable country, don't we? Oh, don't we ever? Mm. Yes. But certainly, our place like yours, Penny, is um, we're we're in drought. Yeah. Mm. yeah. We mm. we had twelve yeah. mills, but it, it evaporates. Yeah. You know. It closes a few cracks, and that's about it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and it opens a few more. Yeah. Uh, but the, I think the other interesting thing is um, how variable the season has been. You know, it's been hot, hot, hot. Then it's been cool at night. Um, things have had trouble. We've had trouble with our apples, for example, didn't mm-hmm. set fruit. We had frosts early on in the piece. Mm-hmm. Apples didn't set, set fruit. There's, you know, there's a plague now of those little orange vegetable bugs everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, the insects I, love the dry weather. They love the dry weather. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, I think it's been a very interesting observation from that point of yeah, view. Yeah, look, I've, I feel a bit more strongly than that. I'm, I think it's actually quite frightening, and, mm. I, and I hate what's happening to our insect populations, you know, due to you know, the recent research that shows that we're looking at losing nearly half of them. And um, the, the environment doesn't function without our insects, and, mm. um, you know, we, we just need to be doing more about climate change. Well, um, and, and that's right, and I guess yeah. people get very keen about planting uh, plants for birds in their garden, mm. whether they be native or otherwise, but we really do need to plant plants for insects as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, native bees that haven't even mm. been identified yet, we're losing because um, you know we, because of what's happening. Mm. And, um, yeah. So are we going to go out and join all those young school children who are... Uh, yeah, I'm certainly <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> who are <laughs> protesting about climate they're, change. They're the generation yes. that's going to cop. What we haven't achieved. So, yeah, um, you know, that's we, right. the least we should be doing is yep. being out there supporting them. Yep. The other, you, you're saying you, you had problems with your apples not setting with no frost. Mm. My problem has been the birds are so thirsty because they're so little and hungry mm. that they've, I've never had invasions of birds attacking all my fruit so early on before they're even ripe you know yeah. they're not giving me a chance so i've mm. all my all my crops have been absolutely decimated this year you mm. know my apple tree i had a huge crop from it last year this year they've got every single one mm. way before i thought of even bagging them mm. um they were eating the raspberries off the canes mm. before the raspberries had even turned Green. <laughs> Green. They were still brown little knobs and they were still into mm. them. And it's yeah. just been It's been hard. Yeah, it's been Very hard, hard. hard for everyone, hasn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Look, out, down our way, we have a lot of um, what we call feral apples. They're roadside apples. And often, if, if things are not so good in the orchard at home, um, you get a bit of roadkill. So, you yep. know, you can go, drive along the road and pick up a few apples. But there's not even apples on mm. the roadside no. Verge this year. That's yep. right. Mm. I actually had a really good apple crop, and I'm still mm-hmm. picking apples, which because oh, I managed to get the nets on yep. relatively early. Yep. Um, but I had no pears, mm. so that was bizarre because usually, you know, if you get apples, you get pears. Yes, and, I've know, had no pears. Um, so no I was fruit at quite all. Surprised about that. But I had I did, blossom. I didn't get apricots again yes. this year, but that's my tree. I've decided to... I can't bring myself to cut down this apricot tree that has never had more than half a dozen apricots on it. <laughs> um, oh. So what I'm doing now Do is growing... Do you need a pollinator? Have you got a pollinator? No, there's a pollinator over and the it, fence. It, and it's just it still not, does. It's not producing fruit. I don't know what's going on. It produces blossom, masses mm. of blossom, but mm. not fruit. Um, but what I'm doing now is I'm using it as a structure to grow my new passion fruit up. 
Excellent. So I can keep Good the idea. tree. Yes. yes. And it's going to grow passion fruit. And enjoy the blossoms. Yes. Which will enjoy be beautiful. Enjoy the blossoms. Yes. So you're getting the best of two worlds. Indeed. Yes. And there's lots, lots of trees that produce flowers and not, not particularly yes. interesting yeah. fruits. So I, I was feeling really sad about this decision that I had made that I needed to cut this tree down. And I, I was so pleased when I came up with this alternative. <laughs> So. And it's a matter of changing your attitude, isn't yeah, it? It really absolutely. is. If something's yeah. a negative, see whether you can see a positive out of yeah. it. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. It's a bit <laughs> like life. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> I'm going to get to some community announcements. There's uh, quite a few to get through here, so we'll make a start. Um, now, firstly, there is a walk and talk uh, coming up at Birrarung Ma. And uh, this will be with uh, one of the original concept designers, Ron Jones. It's taking place on Thursday, the 21st of February at 6pm. Uh, it's being run by the Australian Garden History Society. Now, um, as I say, uh, Ron Jones was one of the uh, original concept designers, and so he's going to be uh, leading the talk, which should be most interesting now, uh, the venue, of course, is at Birrarung Ma. The meeting spot is uh, the southern end of Russell Street on top of Fed Square Car Park where you can either take stairs or the car park lift down to park level and um, it's a good uh, spot for an overview. Now, there'll be a picnic spot, um, BYO picnic for afterwards, just near the children's play area um, now, uh, to get there, you can take the train to Flinders Street Station, trams to Flinders Street Station, Federation Square. Car parking will be available at Fed Square Car Park. Um, and uh, as I say, uh, you, uh, it's, a, it's a totally free event. So uh, it is all taking place 6 o'clock Thursday, the 21st of February. And if you'd like more information on that, you can contact Robin... And uh, her number is 0418-353-528. I'll give that number again, 0418-353-528. And as I mentioned, that is a totally free event and should be really interesting. Now, also a reminder that uh, the events up at uh, Cloud Hill Gardens are still ongoing at the moment. There's two more events left for this uh, Christmas New Year holiday period. Coming up on the um, February the 23rd, which is a Saturday, of course, uh, there is Latitude 37 uh, playing. Uh, cost for that is adults $35, under 18s. Uh, sorry, under 16s, $25. And then coming through on Saturday, the 9th of March, um, Riley Lee will be presenting music of the Shakuhachi. And uh, the costs for that one are adults, 45 under 16s, 35 Now, you are invited to head up to the gardens early, um, bring a picnic to have in the gardens if you'd like uh, bookings. You can go to the website, simply punch in Facebook and it, uh, uh, sorry, on, simply punch in Cloud Hill and it will all come up for you and you can uh, follow the prompts or you can give the gardens a phone and their number is 97511009. That's 97511009. Okay, next up, um, State Dahlia Show for 2019. 
there's going to be more than a thousand blooms on display at the Victorian State Dahlia Show. Now, this is coming up Saturday 23rd and Sunday 24th of February. The show will be held at the Mount Waverley Community Centre, 47 Miller Crescent in Mount Waverley, starting at 12.30, running through till 5 o'clock on the Saturday and 10am through to 3.30 on the Sunday. There'll be Devonshire teas, uh, plant sales, cut flowers, plenty of information about growing dahlias. Entry is adults $5, pensioners $2 and children are free. Now, also on uh, that same weekend... The Melbourne Begonia Society show, entitled Begonia Treasures, is being held at the NG Wishart Senior Citizens Hall. That's at 964 Nepean Highway in Moorabbin. Melway's reference there is 77D6. Again, Saturday 23rd, 10 through till 4. Sunday the 24th, 10 through till 3. There will be display and sales of begonias, many varieties only available at the show. Entry is $5, Devonshire tea and sausage sizzle available. And if you'd like more information on that one, you can contact Janine. Her number 0404817449. So 0404817449. Now, Open Gardens Victoria have got a bee-friendly cottage garden opening in the Dandenongs next weekend, of course, 23rd and 24th of February. Now, Holly Cottage is uh, nestled into a one acre of sloping land atop the Dandenong Ranges township of Valinda. Now, while the garden owners set out with practical intentions to establish a productive food garden and grow medicinal flowering plants as forage for their bees, the garden they've created is very, very pretty. Um, they've got using uh, an eclectic mix of flowering perennials. It's full bloom, in full bloom in summer. And uh, some of the perennials have only been in the ground for three years, but they've taken off very quickly there and well anchored by the mature trees. Now, uh, <clears throat> after finding it difficult to compete with the local wildlife for a share of the garden's fruit and vegetables, the owners created a circular vegetable garden with wedge-shaped raised beds and uh, this layout means the produce can be netted when required and the structure has provided support for lovely climbing roses. Summer crops include tomatoes, cucumbers and salad greens. Now they've also got um, chickens there uh, and uh, along with the, the straw that they mulch with um, which they uh, use for compost as well as the mulching and uh, flowering weeds are encouraged as forage for the bees and others are also used as fertiliser greens either being dug into the soil or harvested and made into liquid fertiliser no pesticides or fungicides are used and uh, as well as the uh, garden being open there'll be a sausage sizzle cakes and teas and coffee uh, all available at the opening visitors will be welcome also to picnic on the lawns there. Now, the details, the address is at 19 Monash Avenue in Olinda. Open 10am through to 4.30 on both days, Saturday 23rd and Sunday the 24th. Entry is $8. Children under 18 are free. Students are $5. And the extras will be that sausage sizzle, cakes, tea and coffee. 
Now, as usual, our good friends at Open Gardens Victoria have given us one free double pass to go to Holly Cottage on either of those two days. If you would like to uh, get that free double pass, do give us a call now on 94190155 and uh, we'll get your details and that pass will be posted out to you. So, again, if you'd like that free double pass, the number to ring is 94190155. Now, uh, Michelle was just talking about Cranbourne Gardens. They've got a special happening down there between the 23rd and the 25th of February. Um, a public cooling house is coming to the Cranbourne Gardens. Now, this was set up in uh, the Botanical Gardens in Melbourne earlier on, and uh, now they're moving it uh, down to uh, Cranbourne. And uh, in conjunction with that... They're having a series of talks. This is all part of the National Sustainable Living Festival. So on Saturday the 23rd at 12.30, there's uh, going to be uh, a talk uh, on gardens for wildlife, lessons from the bushland. Then at 2 o'clock, um, Dr Meg Hurst will be talking on raising rarity uh, to get a taste of the incredible work going on in the National Herbarium of uh, Victoria. Uh, Sunday the 24th, 12.30 and 2 o'clock, our good friend John Arnott will be talking about conservation through cultivation, uh, which means he's talking about Australia's most threatened and precious native plants, uh, which need uh, a bit of help if they're to survive current and future environmental challenges. So that will be most interesting. And at 12.30, Chris Russell will be talking about greening the city. Uh, finally, uh, Jacoby will be, who's the uh, uh, Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria Aboriginal Programs Facilitator, will be talking about climate justice. Uh, so he'll be sharing his passion for his volunteer work with SEED, a movement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people who campaign for climate justice in collaboration with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. So lots and lots happening down at Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. As I say, the, um, the uh, cool house uh, will be there from uh, the 23rd through to the uh, 25th of February, but those talks are on 23rd and 24th. Uh, just a couple more, or one more actually, um, this is a one for your diaries, uh, but 9th and 10th of March, um, Fernie Creek Horticultural Society uh, will be holding their 14th annual plant collector's sale and garden expo. It'll be held in the grounds of the Fernie Creek Hort Gardens. That's at 100 Hilton Road East, Sassafras. It will open from 10 to 4 on both days. Entry is still only $5.00. That's never changed since their first event. And there'll be 20 to 30 stalls, both in the gardens and in the halls, selling a wide variety of plants and garden paraphernalia. There's free parking on site, uh, with some disabled spaces allocated. As usual, light refreshments will be served, as well as the popular sausage sizzle. Bus groups are welcomed by arrangement. If you'd like further information, you can contact the secretary on secretary at fchs.com.au 
or you can call 9728-2356. That's 9728-2356. Michelle, you've got a talk coming up. I have, indeed. Um, I'm still very uh, strongly involved with the Friends of Burnley Gardens. I was a lecturer at at Burnley for 30 years, so I really can't leave the place alone. I'm still attached with (laughs) the umbilical cord. You stamped your imprint on it for good, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that, but I I certainly am still attached. Um, So, uh, actually, uh, I'm giving a talk for the group on the 26th of March, so that's a little entry for your diary ahead. And the talk uh, will be on Papua New Guinea, where um, Rod and I, my husband Rod and I, were last year. You might remember we're interested in wild places, so we go to places like Papua New Guinea and Galapagos and Madagascar and those sorts of things. So, um, yes, that that talk will be on on Papua New Guinea. We were fortunate enough to be there for uh, the Mount Hagen show. Oh, wow. And that was pretty spectacular. Actually, I lived in Port Moresby in 1971. That's a fair while back, and boy, has it changed! It really has. Oh, just population. Oh well, population explosion. Lots, mm. lots of, uh, lots and lots of people. Yeah, mm. I don't think that's uh, unusual for the world mm. at the moment, but um, but certainly Mount Hagen was spectacular, and the uh, and the display there was spectacular. People from the highlands uh, used to fight each other quite a lot and kill each other a fair bit of the time too. And someone had the bright idea of having this uh, Mount Hagen show where they could display and dance instead of mm. um, killing each other, which is just fantastic. fantastic. <laughs> Why didn't someone think of it sooner? <laughs> and elsewhere in the world. Yes, exactly. You know, really, we could take a leaf out of their book. We could. But the highlands are full of dendrobiums, dendrobium orchids, oh, which... I can of, imagine. Of course are amazing and nobody knows their names. They're just... There, yes. we went to a, a little botanic gardens, if you can call it that, of a man who's been collecting uh, just fallen dendrobiums for decades, and he has preserved them and looked after them, and of course um, told us all about them, which was really wonderful. Um, the the highlands are fabulous. The coast is extraordinary. Of course, it's volcanic, and, uh, and there was volcanoes to climb and that sort of thing. And then we went out to, um, that was at Weewak, and then we went off to Rabal, and then we went out to Bougainville, which was most mm. most industri- interesting. I hadn't realised that Bougainvillians are a female-dominated culture, and it's okay. a matriarchal lineage, right. which, which is really good. Reminds me of lemurs. <laughs> <laughs> it does, yes, because lemurs are matriarchal too. That's, that's right. Lemurs from Madagascar, that's correct. Um, so we had an opportunity to, to visit their House of Parliament, even though it wasn't sitting. But they have um, in their small parliament four female members, which is fantastic. Mm. And, uh, and, of course, uh, that was most interesting. interesting. And, and what do you expect to see when you go to Bougainville? Bougainville. Bougainville. Of course. And there were some, <laughs> which was fantastic. So we, we had an opportunity to see the Panguna Mine and um, hear about the troubles that had gone on there all those years ago and speak to some of the locals who had experienced that period whereby um, people had really fled to, into the highland areas and had hidden from um, police and, and uh, forces that were trying to subdue them. Mm. And Again, living off the land in those times was not easy, but um, it gave you a real insight into, golly, how how lucky we are in Australia. Gosh, yes. And um, how little political unrest we have, really. Mm. 
in the fullness of time. But uh, I think the talk might be interesting. I so think it would be very interesting. Illustrated, I presume. Illustrated. We, we took some nice pictures, and, um, and that's on the 26th of March uh, for the Friends of Burnley Gardens, and the time is 7 o'clock. We usually meet for an, a natter and some nibbles, and then 7.30 for the, for the talk itself. Fantastic, excellent. Now, while you've, you've mentioned Galapagos, you're going yes. back there again. Yes, well, we, we had retired, Pam. I thought you had. <laughs> we had retired. So you can't stop, Michelle. Well, it's a bit, the umbilical cord stretches from here to Burnley and here to Galapagos as well. <laughs> so we have another couple of groups going at the end of the year. Someone put the hard word on Rod, one of his old uni friends, put the hard word on Rod and he caved in. So we have a group going in October and a group going in November. But this year, um, usually you take a cruise around Galapagos, um, but a lot of people get seasick and they don't like mm. cruises. Yep. So this year we have a land-based program, okay. which will be quite different and not being offered by other people. And, of course, we've lived there and worked there. And last year we, we volunteered at a research station in the highlands of San Cristobal on a self-sustaining farm, and that was a side of Galapagos that we hadn't seen before. Right. In fact, we realised that they do have rivers and they do have um, wonderful swimming holes. Mm. It's just extraordinary because what you usually see on David Attenborough and other programs is just is the desert coastal areas. Yes, of course, and the wildlife. And the wildlife. But, but you never mm. think about the actual population that's, that's living out there. Correct. And there are four centres of population uh, on four of the uh, four of the islands. There's many more that are not populated, but on those four islands there are small numbers of population varying mm. between island and island. And uh, the highlands have that's where the tortoises are. That's where they breed. Mm-hmm. And of course, a wonderful range of birds. Some of Darwin's finches are up in the highlands as well. So it was a, it was another side of Galapagos that we really hadn't seen. Um, and if folk are interested in contacting me about Galapagos things, uh, the best contact phone number is 514554522. And we do have a website. It's adlandadland.com.au. Fantastic. And people okay. can, can chat about Galapagos things if they want to. And, of we, course, it's not easy to visit <coughs> Galapagos because it's, um, visiting is quite restricted, isn't it? It has to be. Well, it, it has to be. There, there still is a lot of visitation. But really, we could all take a, a leaf out of Galapagos's book in how the, the visiting is done. You really, except for in the towns, you have to have a registered National Park Guide with you. At all times. Well, that's and, fair enough. And that's terrific because you just don't know what habitat you might be treading on or what, well, some people do touch the animals and you don't, they don't want that, mm. of course, because you want everybody to have the same pristine visitor Absolutely. experience. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So, um, so th- that is very good and they are insistent on that. Even if you arrive in Galapagos on your own boat, mm. you still have to have a local national park guide. Mm. And they're there to protect the wildlife, look after you and protect it and protect habitat. Mm. Um, so good. Michelle the ABC program that was on recently about the, I can't remember the guy's name but he went yes. there with his family and he made it very clear that the visitor population was um, impacting the wildlife but you think that they, they are getting it under control? The, the I, I think the it, it's not the visitor population so much, I disagreed with what he said okay. um, I think it's more the local population and the um, 
the immigration from the mainland out okay. to Galapagos that's stretching so it's the permanent resources, population, the permanent population, the increasing more. permanent population. Because really, yep. really, most of the visiting is done under very strict Street. conditions. Okay. For example, in times yeah. past, we could choose which islands we went to on yep. our cruise, and now we can't. Yep. It's, it's quite strict. You choose the cruise boat mm. that goes to the islands mm. that you want. You don't choose the islands and then the cruise, cruise boat. boat. Yes. Yeah. So they've, they've now orchestrated the visiting quite, it's almost choreographed, yep. quite, um, quite carefully, mm. and you, you spend good quality time on the islands there's no question about that but there's a limit to the time that you can spend and that's also good it means that you're you know might be at a site for a couple of hours and then you're back on your boat where you do all of your eating and and everything else and they've established the systems to deal with all the waste and all that sort of thing well they 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 do that's being dealt with as well as we can see, it's been yes. dealt with yeah. quite well. Um, they have a desalination plant for fresh water, yeah. and they now have wind power okay. on several islands. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's also, yep. you know, that's steps yeah. steps in the right it's, direction. It's something that we have to think about for all our precious places. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, is, is that we're going to love them to death. You know, that's exactly right. destroy them just by, mm-hmm. by too many visitors. Yeah. 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 And look, you know, people often say, look, here's, here's Galapagos, and it's so pristine, and it's so mm. wonderful, and, and why can't they do this, and why can't they do that? And really the answer to that is, well, why can't we do it? Mm. I mean, why can't we restrict certain mm. um, visiting mm. areas? Why can't we stop agriculture from encroaching on our mm. native yep. life? Exactly. Yep. Um, so it's all very well to uh, to be critical. Yeah. But oh, yeah. We're oh, yeah, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I didn't think you were. Yeah. No, yeah. no, I'm just moving on from yes. that, really. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So anyway, Galapagos, October, November 2019. Yep. It's back on. Fantastic. Okay, good on you. And you'll be regulated. <laughs> yes, that's right. We'll be careful. Yes, yeah, which is nice to know that you're not going to be harming the place that you desperately want to see. Correct. Yeah. And look, people, even the locals will say to you, if you get too close to an animal that might be, you know, you, you might have a, a sea lion on your deck chair, for example, right. <laughs> taking up residence, and, um, and people will say to you, two metres, you're not, you're yep. not to approach the animal. So the locals are being educated yep. as well. Yep. And there's still lots of wildlife in the towns. Mm. For example, we'd be walking along a path with marine iguanas. Yep. And you, you know as a visitor, you know to give them their space. Yep. Because it's more important for the animals than it is for you. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Mm. Yep. It's, yep. it's, it's good. good. And the, the locals are on board. Yep. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Okay. Now, today is a very special day. The, in fact, the whole week has been a very special week for 3CR because um, it is our annual subscriber drive. Now, this is a really important way that uh, the community can support 3CR and, uh, and keep us, basically keep <laughs> us here and running. Uh, the station was founded by some uh, very passionate members who... Uh, Clean bricks did all sorts of things to uh, to uh, set up the uh, the station, and uh, of course we all volunteer our times. Uh, we don't get paid one cent for running our different programs. Um, and uh, the way uh, you people can support us is to become a subscriber to uh, the program. Now, um, it's uh, your help will. Uh, um, help keep the radio station on air. It will give a voice to people who traditionally have been denied a place in mainstream media. 
Um, it funds a radio station that has a policy of non-racist, non-sexist broadcasting and supports the struggles of working class people everywhere. Should I say class? Working people. Um, I don't think we quite have the class structure that yeah. maybe Britain has. Um, we also give Australian artists and music out there um, much support. 3CR plays at least 55% Australian music each week and uh, it helps build skills and empower disadvantaged groups with training courses and special projects. Now, um, we would love uh, our 3CR listeners to um, also become subscribers and help support not only the station but the 3CR gardening show in particular and to help um, convince some of you uh, I have a little um, a little bribe we'll call it that but I have five books here uh, to give away um, if the first five people who phone up to either uh, join as a new subscriber or if you're already a subscriber to renew your subscription for the next 12 months um, you can receive one of these five books and these books will be posted out free of charge to you so I'll quickly mention what the books are just to whet your appetite um, I have a book on Stuart Rattle's Musk Farm with a foreword by Paul Bangay I have a book on uh, Jean Galbraith, Writer in a Valley, written by Meredith Fletcher. Now, Jean Galbraith, of course, um, wrote... Uh, she was so instrumental in, in, in bringing um, Australian, Australian native plants, plants yes, mm-hmm. to the attention of um, uh, not just adults but children. She did a mm. lot of work with um, writing for children and getting them so interested in Australian native plants. And she was a Gippslander too, Pam, wasn't she? She was a mm. Gippslander, absolutely, and this tells the full story of how she got started and her contributions. Uh, I also have a book called Propagating from Cuttings. This is by John Mason. That Now, this is a very detailed um uh, almost a textbook give, telling you absolutely everything you know to, about uh, uh, setting up uh, cuttings and propagating from them. Uh, there's a book called Dig, which is all about modern Australian gardening, and that runs through, it's by Meredith Curtin, that runs through all the seasons with things like um, what to plan, um, what, sorry, what to plant, um, uh, going through annuals, perennials and bulbs, grasses, ground covers, climbers, shrubs and trees, herbs, fruit and vegetables, and that goes through each season um, covering that same information. Uh, there's uh, a list of herbs and fruit vegetables and, and plants at the back, lots and lots of coloured photographs and illustrations throughout the book. And the final book is Seasons in My Kitchen Garden, uh, A Journey from Paddock to Pottager by Marcel Nankervis. And this is all about uh, Marcel moving uh, down to take over her family home where she grew up on the farm. And uh, she set it, uh, herself the challenge of converting one of the neglected paddocks into a pottager. And it goes right through the seasons with that one and two, starting from... Uh, starting from scratch and exactly how to set up a potager, what to plant. Uh, it gives you full details about each of the plants that she did uh, plant in her potager, how to, uh, how to grow them, how to cultivate them, how to ideas for harvesting and preserving. So lots and lots of information in that book too. So 
for the first five people who like to phone in, in on nine four one nine zero one double five and either become a new subscriber or to uh, renew your subscription. Uh, you can get one of these books posted out to you for free. Pam, now, how much is it to I'm become about to say, a new subscriber? <laughs> it would help if I mentioned that. But, um, yeah, subscriptions are, if you're a concession or a pensioner, $35 uh, for the year. If you're waged, $75. So uh, those two costs, 35 concession, 75 waged. We'd love you to uh, phone in, become a subscriber, support the station. It does mean you also get a vote and a say in, uh, in the running of the station. So you can really feel a part of the whole uh, team uh, management of the station here and, and really have a say in what you'd like to see in the directions you'd like to see 3CR uh, running in. So that number again, 9419. 0155 to uh, have a chat to Liz and to uh, become a subscriber or renew your subscription for the next 12 months. <coughs> Penny, we must get on to uh, where you were yesterday. Okay, could I just mention sure. um, uh, the tomato talk that I'm doing in a few, it's three weeks' time, if you sure. wouldn't mind. Yep. Um, so I'm, I'm doing a talk as part of the Food and Wine Festival. And um, I'm talking about tomatoes, and uh, I'm doing it at the Paran Mechanics Institute Victorian History Library, hmm. which um, I have to say is where my daughter works. So that's why we've collaborated to, to have it at this venue, which is a terrific venue in, in Paran and a, a really good um, library if anyone's interested in, in Australian and Victorian history. It's just a good library anyway. Um, and it's on... Oh, got the date here in front of me, um, 14th of March, and it goes from 7pm until 8.30pm, and it's a free event, Okay. Um, but you do need to book um, to come, so you can do that through the food, Melbourne Food and Wine Festival website, um, so if you just Google Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, and... Um, and just put in tomatoes. I've found is the easiest way to okay. find it in the search thing, and it'll yes. come up. It'll come up with the with my talk. So okay, um, they're they're really hoping both the the food and wine festival and the and the library. They're hoping to um, generate a bit of interest because this is the first time they've tried being part of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. So. Okay, yeah. Penny, so why don't you time. send it on to me, and I'll put it on the Friends of Burnley Gardens okay. uh, we'll Facebook page as well. That. That's one hat, one hat. Yeah. <laughs> the other hat. Yeah. Yes, because that's terrific. In fact, I ha- recently had op- the opportunity to go to the Paran Institute's library oh, um, because I'm updating the history of the Burnley Gardens. Yeah. Oh, it was right. last done in 1991 for their mm. centenary. And uh, and the the librarian there, I don't know whether it was your daughter, but she was extremely helpful. She looks just, just like terrific. me. Just Okay. Tall, <laughs> tall and very tall. And I think it could have been there. <laughs> well, that's yes. great. Yeah, so, and they do have an amazing collection. And for gardeners, there is a really good, um, not so much the how-to garden books, but the history of gardening. And mm. they have a really yeah. good collection. In fact, that's why that. I was yeah. there looking. Yeah. I was looking at the early founders of the Burnley, Burnley yep. Gardens, and it was John yep. Dalecki in particular. Uh, yeah. Who was also at the Royal mm. Botanic Gardens right. um, that we're trying to track down, and yeah. yes, they were fabulous. And you can join for only fifteen dollars a year. There you go, mm. cheap mm. at the price. Yes, mm. indeed. 
So, Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, and presu- I presume uh, there will be books for sale there as oh, well. Yeah, I will have tomato books for sale. <laughs> I'm also hoping that I'll have lots of tomatoes. So what I'm what I'm actually talking about are the different flavours of tomatoes and mm. the, a little bit about growing, but because it's not sort of growing season in March, we're doing all the harvesting and stuff. So I'm looking at different colours and what colours give the flavours and the fact that tomatoes, red tomatoes, have both white and yellow skins. And if they have white skins, then they're actually pink tomatoes. And if they have yellow skins, they're red tomatoes. And Mm. talking about the lycopene and the beta carotene and all the various things that are in tomatoes that give them their flavour and their nutrients. Mm. And I picked picked some recently that had the most beautiful purple colour. Not not completely purple, but purple and red. What a beautiful combination. Yes. Yes. So Mm. those are the the ones that have the anthocyanin in the skin. Mm. And they've actually been bred from wild South American tomatoes. Yes. Which has developed the the purple in the skin. And it's been through breeding, not through genetic implantation and stuff like Mm. that. So... And there's some terrific ones around. And, and the bit that turns purple is the bit that the sun hits. Yes. So where the sun right hits the it, it turns this vivid indigo purple. Oh, and stunning. then underneath, if it's, if it's red and, mm. red and black, is mm. what Diggers is calling it, um, underneath it's this beautiful pinky, mm. pinky It color. has a little white. Um, ring just under the epidermis. Yeah. The ones I was yes. eating yeah. anyway. Okay. Yeah, some of them do. And the other ones, the green the ones. Green so the green ones. The beautiful, mm. vivid green flesh, um, of, even though it's got the indigo skin. So, And of course those anthocyanins, those purples, they're mm. present in blueberries and, yep. and mm. other purple vegetables yeah. and they're supposedly Important. very good for us. Yeah, yes. But you need to eat the skins because yes. it's mainly only in the skin. In the skin. Mm. In so fact, we should be eating the skin of just about flesh. everything, I yeah. believe, of for the fibre. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Indeed. Okay. So um, back to um, what I was going to talk about, which is, which is garlic. I was, <laughs> I was at the Menian <clears throat> Garlic Festival yesterday, which is um, in its third year, and it's, it really is an extraordinary event. It, it was, it's organised by the town. So it was started by, um, by David Jones, who um, is a garlic grower in, in, Mer- in Merbu, and uh, he and his wife Kirsten sort of came up with the idea with, with some other people. But the thing that I love about it is that it is everybody in the town of Menian is involved in some way. So whether they're marshals or they're, um, they've got stalls or, um, and, and it was just, it was so well run. So for someone who is out there doing talks and stuff all over the place, it is such a pleasure <coughs> to have something that is well run. Um, mm. And it was a huge crowd. Explain a, where Menian is. Menian is just north of Wilson's Prom. Mm. So just in, in, that, in that area, um, uh, inland from Wilson's Prom. Nice, mm. nice country. Yeah, it is. It's a fabulous oh, country. Yeah. And it's a really interesting town. It has a really strong musical identity as well because they have a, a really good venue and they get some really good um, artists out there performing so blues, at different I think. times. So blues, I think. blues? Yeah, no, mm. everything. everything. So, so folk and, and um, classical you know, opera singers and all sorts of people. Mm. But mm. I mean, they, And they had some really good music at the festival, but we were so busy that um, I didn't really get the chance to <laughs> listen. But they, but they also have a huge, um, the Manian Hall is a really good speaker's venue. And yet they can, you can fit you know, 100, 150 people in there. And I was speaking to groups of that size yesterday. Because wow. I did two talks, so um, you know, it, and it was just really, really well done. And if you wanted your garlic supply for the year, you could have bought it there yesterday. But right. I just, I just think we need to sort of call out some of the um, community energy that goes into some of these events, and and it was just really special to see how well everybody worked together and 
um, one of the things that they did for the first time this year was to have a um, sheaf, and I'm saying that carefully, sheaf tossing competition. So when David first said it to me, I thought he said sheep, and I was thinking, oh, I'm not so sure about this. <laughs> <laughs> but it's wheat sheaf. So ah. when you you know bundle it all together yes, into yes. sheaves, and okay. they were they were um you sort of lifted up a bit like you do in with the Scottish um with the big poles. Oh right. And um you lift it up and and throw it over over a um a tall bar like a high jump bar. Okay. So you've got to try wow. and get it over this over this bar. And how did you go? I didn't have a chance. You didn't to have try, a go. But <laughs> I did watch it for a little while from a distance. It looked like great fun. So, so do they were, raise the bar till they get a winner? Uh, I look. I'm not sure because I think it depends on the size of the person who's attempting to throw that. Because there were kids doing it as well. Oh, so right. it was everyone from young people to yes. you know, big blokes and all the rest of it. And, and I think it was a bit experimental this year. But okay. Apparently, it's a tradition in some areas. This Mm. Sheaf tossing competition. You don't no. see sheafs of wheat no. anymore. No, I mean they're all bailed they, out. They all yeah, yeah. Yeah. Probably we're not yeah. really in wheat country, are we? No, no. But no. even so, yeah. but you could do it with barley and oats and yeah. you know, yes, a whole course, range of, of different things. Yeah. So yeah, but it yeah, it was um, it was just it was great. They do and they have kids um, vegetable sculpture competitions and mm. sack races and you know, so it's mm. something sort of something for everyone as well as yes. the, as well as the gully and amazing local produce. So what is it about the soil around? that makes it good garlic growing area um look it's uh, there's it, there's a lot of variation so mm-hmm. you know not all of it is is terrific and and you still have to look after your soil if you're going to grow garlic you know you can't just put it into any soil mm. um but i think it's partly the it's the climate um so you get the really good cold winters you mm-hmm. get rain at, at appropriate times although this last um, garlic growing season's been a tricky one because winter mm-hmm. was so dry mm-hmm. Um, and some people who are used to getting regular rain didn't, and they didn't have irrigation set up, so um, some of the bulbs were a bit small. Um, but one of the growers, well, it was actually David and his wife, Kirsten, they, one of the things we've been talking about um, at the Garlic Industry Association is the fact that there are, there's a possibility to plant some garlics at really early in spring and get a crop. Mm. Um, but you can only plant the long storage ones. So they they tried it with creoles this year, and they actually got their best crop from the August planted, late August planted creoles. Mm. Um, it was better because than the ones that were planted at the traditional time. times. Yeah, I'm just going to say usually yeah. we're planting in April, May. Yeah, but that's be, that's when they're sprouting. Mm. So you need to you know you need to look at planting them. But creoles and silverskins, those two groups, will last for 12 months. So you can hold them and plant them. And this is very experimental at the moment. So I wouldn't put mm. your whole crop in at mm. the end of August. Um, but it's worth thinking about and it's worth trying because instead of the garlic being in the ground for eight months, yeah. it was in for four months mm. okay. and they still got big bulbs. Oh, really? Wow. So, um, but you need to be really specific about which cultivars you're using. Yeah. You know, and mm. you, you know, your soil needs to be good and the climate needs to be right. And mm. It's one of the things that um, we're finding more and more is that garlic is really adversely affected by climate change because garlic mm. being a clonal thing, it, is, um, it adapts to the climate that it's in and it expects to sort of certain things at certain times and when you don't get that, you get adverse growth effects, which the worst one is, um, is what's called side sprouting, mm. uh, which every single clove in a bowl puts up, the outside leaves put up shoots so you end up with this massive growth of green 
um, which splits the whole bulb apart. And, and once it's progressed any distance, you can only sell it as green garlic with the leaves and the, and the sprouting cloves and stuff. Um, if you if you get to it quickly, you can harvest it. So you end up with small bulbs that are a bit harder to cure because you've got excess green matter. Mm. Um, but you can still cure them. But you can effectively lose your whole crop yep. through this Goodness. just because you get a downpour of rain at the wrong developmental time or you get a sudden really high temperature followed by a really low temperature within a few days Okay. Um, and a few other things like that. So this really unpredictable weather that we were talking about at the beginning of the program it's really impacting some crops, and they can become they can become mm. very hard to mm. grow. Mm. So, and yeah. t- talking about um, unpredictable weather, I was away for a couple of weeks in the US visiting my family, and of course I missed all those forty degree days, which yeah. I was pleased about, and I got a few minus tens in America. Um, but uh, coming back, I found uh, and talking about tomatoes too, I found what I thought was virus in the fruit itself. Mm. So very mottled, mm. pale yellow and red yep. um, looking fruit. I wasn't yep. happy about that. And then I, I, I hope I didn't find uh, fruit fly because we've yep. never, never had fruit fly. Mm. And I'm just wondering whether there might have been the odd fruit fly coming Yeah, in. look, I've been keeping my eye out for fruit fly because I know mm. they're moving south and I thought, you know, this weather might have been... I haven't seen them in my garden yet, mm. thankfully, but I did have one plant that had mottled fruit like yours, which yes. I think is a virus. And um, and so when you have that, do you just take it out, the whole thing, or do you... You pull the whole thing pull out. Pull the whole plant, because yep. the rest of the plant was beautiful. It was green yep. and lush and, and looking vigorous well, if it's and a vi- if it's a virus, it will spread to the whole plant, and that's mm. what happened with mine. Mm. Um, but if yours hasn't, then maybe it's not a virus. Okay. So, but you can actually put viral affected plants into the compost because once the plant dies, the virus dies. Mm. It doesn't spread to other things in the same way that fun- a fungal problem problem can. might. Yeah. Yes, or even bacterial. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So okay. then, and you probably don't know, but there is an endemic Galapagos tomato. So there's. I a, have actually read that read somewhere. It? Yes. 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 I've, I've seen it on a couple of the islands. It's very hairy stemmed and yep. hairy leaved. And it's a little a, round red. And a bit of one. purple in the leaves? Mm, a little bit usually. of purple in the leaves. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And in the towns, <clears throat> there's a hybrid tomato that just sort of grows in people's front yards and on the, yep. on the road verges and whatever, but it's yeah. not the Galapagos tomato. Yeah. Mm. It's a little hybrid one. The Galapagos tomato is actually used um, as some of the breeding that went into some of these purple tomatoes. So oh, really? it was one of the tomatoes that was, that okay. was um, apparently used yeah. in, in, with some of the breeding. Mm. So. Now, of course, when you're out on the islands, you can't pick those tomatoes because mm. they're native plants. Oh, so yeah, yeah. You just have to look at them, wonder about them and photograph them. Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and and if you did pick them, you wouldn't bring them back to Australia because Definitely you are not. not allowed to import seed of any Solanaceae plant into Australia. So all, all you people who are eating overseas mm. and finding interesting Italian tomatoes, please do not put the seeds into your pockets and oh, bring yes. them back because there are now viroids in other countries which we do not have in Australia and they can decimate not just tomatoes, but mm. and I mean, no. Now, viroids are virus-like? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they, and potatoes. Mm. So you mm. could destroy the Australian tomato and potato industry well, and by bringing them back. And chilies yes. as well. And capsicums. Capsicums. Yes. Eggplants. Eggplants. Yeah. Yes. Mm. So you just don't do it. Mm. So please don't bring seed back in. Um, we're so lucky that we're, at this moment, immune from mm. those sorts of diseases and we want yep. to keep it that way. Yeah, mm. indeed. Mm. Yeah. Now, uh, we still have uh, three books available. Uh, if you'd like to 
become a, a subscriber to 3CR and help support not only the station but the 3CR gardening show, uh, do give us a call. Uh, two of the books have already no. Uh, two of the books have already gone. Three are still available. Now, becoming a subscriber does mean that you're a member of the station and you can have a say in what happens at 3CR. It keeps independent and commercial-free radio alive in Melbourne. Um, you get a yearly 3CR magazine uh, called The Cram Guide. Uh, and, uh, of course, this is the best way that you can... Uh, Support 3CR to continue for the next 12 months. So do give us a call, $35 uh, concession or if you're a pensioner, uh, $75 if you're waged. That number to ring is 94190155. We'd also like to hear from you if you have a, a question this morning, um, if you'd like to talk to uh, either Penny or Michelle who are in the studio this morning, do give us a call on 94190155 or we have Susie on the outside line. Uh, if you'd like to have a chat to Susie, 94198377. We're going uh, first up to uh, Anne out in uh, Northcote. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for your program. Um, Penny, I've got a question about garlic. Sure. I have a friend who... Uh, had an ulcer and um, he and garlic really affects him so he hasn't really eaten it he's a bit better these days but um, I was told that if you take this the very centre of the garlic out it's um, it takes away the potency that affects stomach issues and, and I think to be able to um, achieve that with him I'm not totally sure because I only use a very small bit but is there a reason for that and is it the same for onions? Um, I'm afraid that's not true. Um, if you take this in, the, the whole of the garlic bulb is exactly the same chemically. So the uh -huh. whole bulb um, and the whole clove um, has the same garlic chemistry uh, until it's cut and the chemistry changes and until it's cooked and then the chemistry changes again. Uh, one of the things that you can try with garlic um, and the other alliums, and I know this because of some experience of the of the um, FODMAP diets is that um, you can't eat garlic or onions if your um, FODMAP, which is fr fructose and oligosaccharides that are found in garlic actually um, and onions affect people who are sensitive to these, um, to these uh, foods. What you can do in that situation is to eat the leaves because they have a diff different chemical um, constituency. So I've, um, my husband has been having to experiment with this recently and we um, grow, I grow spring onions, but we don't eat the base of them. We only eat the green leaves and mm. use that, use that as our onion base. And you can do the same with garlic. So if you're wanting garlic flavours, what yeah. you can do is either grow garlic chives or yeah. you can grow garlic sprouts, which means involves planting garlic cloves and you can plant them really closely together in a pot and all you do is you pick the leaves. Um, so you can pull the whole thing out and just eat the green leaves and discard the, the little bulb bit that's left at the bottom or you can just pick the, harvest the leaves and you'll get two or three regrowths before the, the clove is, is, um, runs out. Runs out. And, um, and you can, so you can get garlic flavours that way which have a different chemistry 
the, the green leaves. Um, so that may well be safe for your friend. Thank you. Penny, do you happen to know what's in the green leaves that's, that's not? Um, um, look, I think what it, what it will be is a lower allicin content mm. in the leaves than in the bulb because allicin is the is the um, offending chemical. Well, chemical. it's not. It's the one thing that gives it the amazing flavour. Mm. Um, and but it it is the flavour is different in the leaves to to in the um to in the bulb. Um, but as soon as you, uh, the, it's actually alanine um, in the in the bulb, mm. and as soon as it gets cut, it gets exp- it the enzyme that's in there called alanase changes it into allicin. So that's why often you don't release those flavours until until the bulb's cut. Um, the only other thing that you might try and look at, this is tricky because I'm not a medicinal person, but the, the chemistry of a roasted whole clove is very different to the chemistry of a sliced clove because the allicin has not been released in a roasted whole clove. Mm. So it may be that using it that way, um, would be okay as well. So I know that doesn't work for FODMAP people, but mm. for, for the intensity, for the mildness, it might be okay. The other thing that you might want to think about is getting hold of elephant garlic, which mm. is not a true garlic. It's actually more closely related to a leek, but it has some garlic flavours without the intensity of, of true garlic, um, and that might be something that you could use instead of instead of true garlic. Mm. Very interesting, and the the caller was talking about um, her friend having an ulcer, but ulcers are treatable these days, so whether it is the ulcer or yeah. perhaps an allergy of some other different yeah, sort. Look, there are there are people who are allergic <coughs> to garlic and shouldn't eat it at all. Yes, yes. Um, so you do, need, you do need to be a bit cautious. And perhaps um, you need to just check with your doctor as well. Yeah, mm. yes, yeah. exactly. Mm. Uh, Penny, are there any other Gaelic festivals coming up or have they all taken place now? No, we've got more coming up, but they're both in Tasmania. Ah. So the Cunha Gaelic, if you're in Tassie next weekend, the Cunha Gaelic Festival is on, on the Saturday. Are you going down for that? No, I can't do that this <laughs> year. But um, the in, on, in the <laughs> second weekend in March, there's the um, Tasmanian um, Natural Garlic and Tomato Festival. So it's um, Tasmanian Natural Garlic and Tomato run it, but it's it's pretty much run for charity. And um, so if you're interested in tomato and garlic, um, which is sort of my <laughs> centres right on everything <laughs> that I'm involved with at the moment, um, it's a really good festival. And, and I think I called in from there last year and I was in the process of being blown off the face of the earth. <laughs> yes, I remember. Because of, <laughs> of the cyclone. Because we, we were getting a lot of wind noise in, oh, the, in the, yeah, your it phone. Was, it, yes, was just, well. uh, it was just <laughs> awful. Can you imagine having a, a cyclone in Tasmania? Oh, it was just they, the poor things. They, it was just yeah. such awful weather. And it, was it, just, so it was devastating. It was for that for one day. And they did go ahead oh. with it. But I, I gave a talk. I did two talks, um, and in the second talk, the tent got blown away around me on that day. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so it was, it was sort of lifting up and um, Mary, Mary Poppins with the difference. Was, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah, it was a it was a really it was a really sad day. But they're doing it again this year, and um, it's in Selborne, so it's not far from Launceston. Okay. Um, and I am going down for that one because the lovely people who, um, Annette, who um, is responsible for Tasmanian Natural Garlic and Tomatoes, um, provided quite a few photos for the book. So as a thank mm. you, I'm, I'm flying down for the day to do a talk on garlic and a talk on tomatoes. So 
that's the second weekend in March. So I think it's mm. the 17th or something like that. I'm not sure. It's yeah, it's around about then. Anyway, look, you can you can have a look at it on the internet and mm. get the get the date. So, um, and that's a really good day if you're interested in those sort of things and you're going to be in Tassie for yeah. it. But yeah, there's no more garlic festivals in Melbourne. Yep. Okay. Or in Victoria. Okay. Yeah. Right. Now, uh, that number again, if you'd like to join us this morning and ask a gardening question, we have Penny Woodward and Michelle Adler in the studio. Uh, the number is 94190155. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Susie on the outside line, 94198377. Uh, Michelle, mm. what's happening with... Um, I know you're heavily involved with, with the Friends uh, Friends group, of Burnley Gardens. Friends yes. of Burnley Gardens. But um, we've just started a new year, and I presume you've got a, an elaborate program, as usual. You, you're very busy as a, as a as Friends a, group. As a group. Yes. Well, fortunately, um, I have uh, moved aside from the presidency, and um, we have an, another wonderful committee on board. Okay. So I actually don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> Um, we, we just had uh, David Daly speaking from uh, uh, wonderful conifer speaking. That was ju- during the week, this week, which is why I'm in Melbourne for this week. And, of course, I'm speaking next month on the 26th of uh, March. Mm-hmm. And I'm not exactly sure, sure what's, what's going on after up. that. Well, the, the, the group are very good at keeping me informed anyway. So yes. yeah. And we do have a Facebook page, Friends of Burnley Gardens, and we do have a website, which is... Uh, fobg.org.au so you can visit any of those sites and you can uh, since I'm the webmaster at the moment of the Friends of Burnley Gardens you can ask to become a friend of the Friends if that makes sense that makes a lot of sense actually <laughs> yes indeed <laughs> yeah. now, we've got um, the Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show coming up too haven't we, we certainly have we're all gearing up for that in, yes. in yes. March that won't yep. be long yes yes always um, a good time of the year I'll be there as part of um, on the ABC Magazine stand for Organic Gardener magazine again, and they've very kindly let Karen and I um, sell the tomato book. So we're going to be selling the tomato book, and I'm doing a talk for diggers on one of the days as well on tomatoes um, as part of MIFCA's. You probably are too, doing some question and answers. I'm doing one question and answer Mm. session too. Yes, and and us too. Yes. We'll all be be there. You'll be there, Pam. Oh, yes. Yes, Yes, we're all there. The yearly conference, isn't yeah, it? Well, it is. I'm, it is. It's I'm when we all ca- yeah. catch up, um, even nice, our, our colleagues from interstate. Yeah. It's it's great fun. So I'm there all five days. Yep. Gosh, you're a trooper. So, yeah. Well, it's a, I, look, I love it. I, I'm exhausted by the end of it. But it's just when you when you write and work on your own and you're not out there all the time, it's really nice to have that chance to actually meet the people who are reading the stuff that you're writing. So it's it's lovely to and find out what people want to know about and so you can sort of think about what what you write for the future as well. Um, I just looked up the, the Tasmanian Natural Garlic and Tomato Festival. It's on the 17th of March. Oh, okay. Yeah, so which is the Saturday. Yep. Okay. Um, we have one book remaining for anyone that um, would like to become a subscriber to 3CR or renew their subscription to 3CR and help support not only the station but the 3CR gardening show. And the one book remaining that we have is uh, a book on Stuart Rattle's Musk Farm with a foreword by Paul Bangay, have yep. either of you ever been out to Musk Farm? No, not me. No, I haven't either. Oh, no. It's the most stunning but I garden. I gather it's, and I've seen the book, it's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book. It's, it's, 
it's just full of wonderful um, coloured photographs, uh, but there is also commentary on right through the book on uh, the different uh, photographs and what you're looking at. Um, but it really is a very, it's the most gorgeous garden, one of the nicest gardens I've ever been to. Um, mind you, when I went there, uh, Stuart was still alive, mm. so it was uh, totally under his control yeah. as to what was but in the, the garden. the people who took over had a sort of commitment to try and keep it going in the way well, that he been, designed Well, there's been two owners. I think. Oh, okay. the, yes, yeah. I think the, oh. uh, the, the person who actually bought Mask Farm, um, I think he died. I think I remember Stephen telling me, and okay. so he, he didn't have it for all that long. Right. But it's now been taken over by a third owner, and they are totally committed to uh, trying to maintain the garden in all its glory. Yeah, so, um, yeah. I mean, a garden is always a movable feast, though, isn't it? Mm. Well, it's, you know, it's a living-growing thing, exactly. so it changes. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. But, but, but um, I, think I might pass that across to have a look Michelle at, to have a quick look where, at it. Where but. is it, um, Pam? Um, it's up, where is it near? Uh, yeah, I've uh, gone there and <laughs> Malmesbury sort of up, Malmesbury up that way, up that, that way, way. Yes. yeah, Dalesford, Dalesford, yes, yeah, that sorry. area, mm. yeah, but absolutely glorious. If very uh, seldomly uh, it does get open to the public, yeah. and when it's open to the public, we always yeah. announce it because um, and they get overrun. They get overrun so because it's a rare event, out. and in fact, last time they had the opening, they couldn't have any cars going in. Oh, you had, they to had to be bus shuttle everybody. bus everyone yeah, in that's right. because there was such a demand from mm. uh, the listeners. But it's mm. certainly, if it ever comes up as an open garden again, yep. um, it's well worth time while. Yep. Grabbing a look grabbing at it look. because it's. I'm just stunning. peeping in through some of the doors into the bedrooms. Oh gorgeous. yes, <laughs> well it was the old schoolhouse that he converted <laughs> wow. into his, um, you know, his residence. And of course, as an interior designer, mm. uh, you know, he did a fantastic job. And the furniture that he put in was um, absolutely beautiful and so fitting for the uh, the place. But uh, anyway, we'll move on. We have our next caller. And we're going to go to uh, Mike out in Northcote. Good morning, Mike. Oh, good morning. Um, right. Uh, I called uh, um, uh, Pam and uh, Michelle. Uh, I think it's a new... Penny and Michelle, yep. Penny and Michelle. Ah, yeah, great. Yes, good morning all. Good morning. Um, yeah, um, I called up a few weeks ago about brown rot, and I have called up in the past, I think it was a few years ago, uh, about uh, brown rot and how devastating it is seeing all the fruit just about ready to be picked and then turning brown. Oh, awful. So after that trauma, uh, many years of seeing that and then stumbling across uh, the potassium bicarbonate, of course I called up and wanted to uh, talk about potassium bicarbonate uh, on the show. But there was a little bit of confusion and I just wanted to uh, set the record straight that that it's not the uh, similar to the bicarbonate which is in washing soda no, that's or electric right. soda so it's a different different and, and it's not the bicarb that you buy uh, for culinary no, purposes no, either that's no, sodium, no, sodium bicarbonate, bicarbonate. Yes. Yeah. sodium bicarbonate mm. exactly yes, yes, right. although uh, yeah and the sodium bicarbonate is effective for brown rot but nowhere near as effective yeah. as uh, potassium bicarbonate mixed together with the uh, with the oil in suspension um, yeah what's it what's it called again that oil in suspension it's a um, probably, what, eco oil? Probably, the, are you talking oil? about the product? Eco, eco, eco fungicide? 
um, is a bit of potassium bicarbonate product. Yes. Um, and I think that they recommend mixing it with some of their echo oil. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yes, they do. Which is and a really because we use it. I use it on garlic to control rust as well. Oh, um, good. Which, um, yeah. but you need to get it really early, and it doesn't actually kill the rust, but it does stop it from spreading by changing the pH of the leaf surface. Right. So, um, but yeah, it is really effective. But, but of for course, it would be difficult when it rains because the, all of that would be washed off. Yeah. You'd have yes, to reapply. Yeah. So you'd have to reapply. Yeah. 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 But that's not a problem at the moment. <laughs> no, well, that's true. <laughs> it isn't a problem. But I'm just wondering if you've also used some um, some copper spray during the winter because that's effective against it and considered to be organic. If it's copper hydroxide, it is. Mm. Depends on the formulation mm. of, of what's. The great organic. thing about the potassium bicarbonate is that um, at, up until now, I don't see any reason why it can't be sprayed right up until that very last minute, just before picking. Uh, it doesn't. I, l- I tried finding the toxicity report on you know, how safe it is. Yep. Uh, and I did see an LDL50. Now, that means that it's pretty non-toxic. It's yeah, no, almost, it is very non-toxic. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's why it's an, a certified organic product is because it, mm. it is non-toxic. Oh, it's wonderful. It's um, been wonderful. Even, even though it's a chemical. That's right. Oh, yeah, but I mean, everything's, everything's a chemical. Everything's a chemical, but, yeah. exactly. But, but the thing with, with copper, and it's one of the things that I, I think that we perhaps don't talk about enough, is that although... Copper is is an effective fungicide. It mm. also kills the fungi in the soil, mm. which potassium yep. oh. bicarbonate doesn't. Oh. Um, and so, because it, it has a different action, it's not actually killing the fungi. It is creating an environment which the fungi can't grow in. Yes. Um, so you need to be a bit careful with how often you use copper because it mm. hangs around in the soil. Um, and, it, and it will kill the, some of the really necessary fungi in the soil as well. Mm. So although it's a sort of certified organic product, you just don't want to do it. This thing of uh, winter washing your trees every year with copper, your fruit trees, I do not think is a good idea. Um, you should only use it if you have a problem. Well, and there's all sorts of other ways that you can deal with it. You might have to miss a crop or two yeah. cro- two crops, but you can cer- you certainly need to take off any fruit that's yeah. um, that's affected and dispose of it responsibly as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it's those fungal spores that you know yeah. just keep reinfecting year after Indeed. year. Indeed, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can I talk about one more thing? Yes, with sure. To the sure. Exactly the same subject. Just before uh, you uh, go on, did you have success with your potassium bicarbonate? Oh, absolutely. So mm-hmm. what ha- what was happening, uh, I, I sprayed once and then I sprayed again uh, probably two or three days later. Um, but then I stopped and I did notice that even the, the corpses of the brown rotted uh, fruit were decomposing differently to the ones that were untreated. So it was actually knocking the fungus even after it had completely taken over. So it changed the look of the um, affected fruit. So it seems as though it's really effective um, and I ate a lot of peaches uh, mm. and nectarines and, and so on. Um, Excellent. That's good to hear. Yeah, and with respect to the other uh, thing about microbes um, and all of that, fungal things, um, is this particular bacillus called uh, Bacillus subtilis. Mm. Uh, bacillus subtilis is found in the soil air. It's a primordial um, a primordial bacillus. Uh, it reproduces a couple of different ways. One way is just by ordinary division, but then the other really exciting way that it 
unique way that it divides uh, is uh, via asymmetrical um, division. Um, that's pretty amazing that it actually reproduces a few different ways. But um, Bacillus uh, subtilis is also responsible for um, fermenting uh, soybeans into a Japanese food uh, called natto. And natto is um, characterised by um, being a superfood uh, and having the highest K2. Uh, it's only just coming now about the vitamin K2, and mm. the vitamin K2 is highest in that particular food product. Uh, also, another thing about subtilis is that I found quite a few uh, papers on that particular um, bacilli um, that indicate that it's used in agriculture already uh, to control uh, a lot of uh, a broad spectrum of, of diseases, including the fungal diseases. So I was super surprised to hear that if Bacillus subtilis uh, in the spore form is sprayed onto fruit, uh, that suppresses. And also, um, I was also surprised to learn that Bacillus subtilis is also used in uh, chicken uh manufacturing or factory farms where lots and lots of chickens are, if they're not putting on the correct amount of weight, they get a kind of a, um, a, a, a biological dose of uh, mm. the bacillus subtilis to colonise their gut and it helps them digest food better. So it's also um, a great uh, gut uh, bacteria that we need yeah. <laughs> in our gut. So I'm just amazed at how everything's connected together. Yeah, um, Mike, yeah, I think I think we're really only at the beginning of discovering, you know, our various bacteria and what they do and how they interact and um you know, our bodies carry thousands, thousands. of different bacteria um, if not all millions. the time. <laughs> and um you know, I I think the research is really interesting uh, and I'd love to hear more about it. It's really exciting. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, but we do need to make sure that we're sticking to, you know, really reliable sources and and that we don't get too carried away down sort of superfood paths because, um, <coughs> you know, celebrities latch onto these things and start telling us all that we've all got to try this and, and it's really important that we check the background of what they're saying before Absolutely. we go leaping in feet first. Mm. Yep, agreed. Um, but, yeah, I have read a bit about um, the particular one that you're talking about and it is a really interesting one. So, But I'm, I think we'll, we'll keep having new ones being found all the time. And it's actually been used uh, for a couple of decades now, the, yeah. the source in the yeah. spore form. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the whole idea of fermenting food is obviously really imp- an important part of diets. And well, and things we that we haven't we done a lot of, but yeah. uh, the Japanese particularly yeah. have done and the Koreans plenty of and the Koreans. And, yes. yeah. and the Koreans, yes. Yeah. And we haven't, we haven't uh, um, well, uh, I, I sort of think that that ignorance is partly due to, due to the fact that, uh, um, well, we uh, have now got fridges and in the past we didn't have fridges and we relied on um, uh, fermentation to even increase the nutritional value of food. Yep. Mm. So yep. it's, uh, it's, as, it's as exciting as eating insects. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Depends no. which insect. Yeah. <laughs> okay then, Mike. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. We are running through uh, until 9.15, so uh, we do have Penny Woodward and Michelle Adler in the studio this morning. If you'd like to jump on the phone line and give us a call, um, if you want to make a comment on what we've been talking about or if you have a gardening question to ask, we'd love to hear from you. That number, 
94190155 or to speak to Susie on the outside line 94198377. Where is your garden up to, Penny, with all this lack of water? Have, um, have things gone to seed very quickly yes, for you like yeah. they have with me? I'm still trying to get all the weeds out. So my current project is I'm weeding the pond. Right. Weeding the pond. And you've got a pond. Have you got waders? You've got a pond. <laughs> well, the, the water's pretty much gone, which is why mm. it's very it's mushy down the bottom. Yes. Um, it's it's about um, four metres by three metres, so it's mm. quite a big... And it's part of my the ecosystem in my garden. It's a really important part. But it got invaded by cooch grass last mm. year. Oh. And I was just too busy to get it under control. Mm. So mm. I've almost got to the point where I've got all the cooch grass out. Oh, well done. Um, and then I, I you've done um, all of this by hand. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In my spare moments, um, keeping you fit, Penny. Yeah. Oh, yes. And um, then I'm, I will um, start filling it up again and although it seems counterintuitive to be filling up a pond in the middle of a drought it's actually really important because I have noticed that the birds in my garden and the insects and things are struggling because they haven't got the water there at the moment so although they've still got dampness they really need that water and and once you get a pond filled up and you've got plenty of things growing in it and you even a tiny we've got um, the water from one of the uh, sort of one of the parts of the roof feed into the pond so it mm. tops it up when we do get a little bit of rain um, you actually don't need to top, top it up more than once a year I've found even even in sort of drought conditions. Um, now that's really interesting that you're saying that Penny because we have ha- taken a different attitude at our mm. place with our pond which is several acres yes. <laughs> in size um, but we've actually looked on it as a part of the natural process of things and yeah. so. I, I think a wetlands is a totally different yeah. thing and, and I agree <clears throat> one of the things I was talking to a frog specialist recently mm. and talking about the, all the frogs that I mm. have in my garden and he said the only thing you should do occasionally is let the whole thing dry out mm. because that helps to control disease. It does, it helps um, to control disease. So but I agree, absolutely. But it's also, you know, different things have different habitats and yep. will thrive at different water levels mm. and temperatures mm. as we found with our poor old e- eels that all died. Yep. But you know, whilst whilst um, perhaps the initial thought was to oh gosh, let's put some more water in yep. there so that we save whatever's mm. um, being compromised at the time, uh, there's going to be another group of insects, bacteria, Mm. uh, fungi, Mm. whatever, that take over at different times. So my question is, should we interfere, which is what we do when we're gardening, or should we let nature take its course? This is my garden. I have um, productive plants growing in it, and it's part of my edible garden mm. so I am interfering and look we interfere all the time yeah. just simply by yeah. watering yeah um, when, when we exactly yeah. Yeah. yes yeah. and so therefore you know in our, in our garden we really have two two sections yeah. the section that we look after and interfere with and the other section that we um, monitor yeah. And try not to interfere, mm. but um, the very fact that we're there, of course, we're interfering. Yeah. Mm. But um, but you know we've we've got two different hats in a way, yeah. trying to manipulate all of that. Mm. Mm. It's, it's it's always a tussle, isn't it? It is because you know at, at different times, um, different species will thrive in a particular environment. Whether it's as the gentleman earlier, the caller was talking about potassium bicarbonate, changing the pH of the leaves changes the whole. Uh, bacterial insect, etc. Yes. Um, environment there, and f- uh, whether depending upon how much water you have, you're going to have temperature differences. Um, you're going to have birds coming and 
drinking and washing themselves mm. if you've got water. If you don't have water, you might have uh, other frogs or other things. Mm. So it, it, it's, it's such a delicate balance the whole time. Mm. It makes it always very, very interesting, doesn't and it? Then, and then we have to also be conscious of things like um, land management from the point of view of, of bushfires. And, yes. you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge subject, really. Yes. But it, we each have to take responsibility for our little bit of land and what we actually do plant and how we manage it. Yes, indeed. I mean, it's even, even just taking <laughs> one example, like um, if we have a lemon tree, and we have gall wasp. Mm. Now we have to have to manage that for our neighbours because they might have lemon trees or citrus trees too. Uh, so exactly. we, you know, there's a time to interfere and a time to not interfere. And and getting that balance right is quite quite tricky. It is. It's um, thought provoking as well. Yeah, but that's what makes that's what makes gardening so interesting because yes. there's there's always something that you have to be thinking about mm. and, 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 and having a philosophy on, to be quite honest. Yes. Well, even earlier we were talking, somebody was talking about keeping weeds in their garden as, um, as pollen sources or honey sources for various insects. Yeah. Well, should we be keeping weeds in our garden? And which weeds if we're keeping weeds in our garden? Yeah, because some weeds encourage things like soldier beetles, which then yeah. you know, decimate your crops and Exa- all that sort of thing. So, exactly. yeah, you, you do need to. I think, I think informed control is probably <coughs> one of the of most it. important things so yeah. and organic growing i think is really really important and here's another little p- piece that's happened to us this year our beehives went for a holiday to our friend dingoes um the reason being we didn't have very much in flower and the bees were mm. suffering we we lost a hive okay. so we, we sent our bees off for a holiday to a friend's place who had more more things in flower but since our bees have gone, the native bee population has increased. increased. Yep. And I've, you know, all the little blue banded bees that are coming mm. to, to visit the um, mm. tomatoes in particular, for example, is, there's so much more this year. Mm. And I suspect that it's because our European bee population yep. has gone off for holiday. Yeah. But the thing with the. Gone, gone to Club, club Med in Bangalore. <laughs> With the blue-banded bees, there they will actually pollinate your tomatoes, which yes, the honeybees can't. Which the honeybees are too big for. Um, well, they they don't have the right action. The blue-banded bees actually headbutt the flowers and release the pollen, yeah. and co- and then are able to collect it. So they headbutt the flowers a hundred and okay. uh, three hundred and fifty oh, times. Oh, it's a phenomenal! Second. They just so you can actually see vibrate it. Yeah. They vibrate it. Yes. And um, at one point, they were, there were various tomato growers who were talking who grow in greenhouses who mm. wanted to be cross-pollinating their tomatoes talking about bringing bumblebees onto the mainland mm. um, because they're in Tasmania. Mm. and uh, But they have found in Tasmania that the bumblebees have interfered with all sorts of things and so mm. they are absolutely banned mm. from coming in onto the mainland because of the effect that they'll have on things like blue-banded bees. And, yes. and even unexpected things like rhododendron is a really problematic weed in Tassie. In Tassie, yeah. But it's because it gets pollinated by the by bumblebee. The bumblebee. Mm. So, you know, it can also affect what weeds you have as to what yes. imported insects you have. Mm. So, you know, you have to be careful on all sorts of levels. But the bumblebees Indeed. pollinate tomato flowers by um, vibrating their chests against, against the it. flowers instead of the head. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, if you don't have the right bees, you can just go along and and um, and 
uh, wave vibrate. at them, vibrate yeah, but, them but, yourself. Yeah, yeah, it, it sounds a little odd, doesn't it? You <laughs> vibrate your tomatoes. <laughs> but the tomato plants are self-pollinating, so mm. you actually don't need to. You don't need insects to pollinate them, but you will get more fruit if you get some pollination. And I believe when they're grown in greenhouses, they do have mechanisms for making yeah, the plants vibrate because that. One of the, the, one of the neatest ways to do it um, is to get your electric toothbrush and take it outside and hold it against the plant. <laughs> and it vibrates it at just the right, uh, right frequency to do the pollination. <laughs> so there you go. This is this morning's trick from Penny. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's wonderful. Yeah, so. Yes. Oh, goodness me. And, of course, the other thing with, with all our, our native bees, um, uh, they've... They, they've, they've Worked out that that if you over mulch your garden and you don't have any bare ground in your garden, yep. that's counteractive for supporting your some but of your the, native bees. A too. lot of native bees are solitary, and yes. the solitary ones often need to burrow. So mm-hmm. if you if you have your whole garden, they they found that um, the sort of gardens that we're having with mulching and lots of flowers are really good for honeybees, mm. but as you say, not so good for some of the native bees. So mm. and and in cooler climates, we don't get the native bees that form colonies, they're all still in New South Wales. We only have solitary. So you do need to have a wild waste area with open ground in parts of your garden mm. to allow nesting places for some of the native bees. So, mm. And you can also set up your bee hotels and things like that. But also some more recent research is suggesting that you shouldn't have, if you're doing one of these bee things, Hotels? you shouldn't have a mm. whole lot of different things because it brings some of the bees, but it also brings their predators. And in the end, one takes over. So what you should be doing is having lots of little different ones in different places mm. rather than a whole lot together. So with, you know, so you have one small one with different, with the same sized holes and another one with, with different, with bamboo or something like that and another one with a bundle of sticks, but you don't have them all in the same place, even oh. though they look amazing and they look like works of art. They look wonderful, but, but they're not, not such so a good, good idea. They're not for the insects, apparently. Mm. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Because And yet in the natural the environment, there's going other. to be bees and there's going to be predators and there's yeah. going to be, you know, in the natural environment, you get all of that anyway. Yeah, but it depends on your garden. I mean, some mm. gardens are so beautifully curated that you don't have... <laughs> they don't have natural things for, spots. Yeah, so that... So people who are putting in these bee hotels, it's good to know that it might be better to have smaller separate ones mm. rather than having them all together. So wow. a little, little bit of knowledge goes a long way, doesn't yeah. it? It does. <laughs> it does. The more the yeah. more you explore a topic, the, yeah. the, the yeah. um I, I, can I just mention that the latest edition of Organic Gardener is just out as well. Oh, um, okay. And I forgot to bring it in because I just had so many other things happening. Um, but there's a really nice article from Paul West about what to plant in your garden to attract um, native bees into your garden. Tomato, um, tomatoes sound good. Yeah, well, <laughs> tomatoes walled for blue-banded bees. Can, can, I, can I interrupt there yep. for a minute? Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but ABC ran a, a two-part series with Paul West yes, just yeah, in the last yeah, two weeks. Yeah, yeah, and it's a great program. But it's more, it's more about honeybees. It does mention some of the native bees. But it's mainly about the honeybees. Yeah, but this was about yeah. about families, volunteers yeah. taking on yep. honeybee hives yeah. and learning how to learning they'd they'd never kept bees before. Yeah. Learning right from, from start Scratch, what to do. What to do and how to manage the hive yeah. and it was I, It was a great program. It was a yeah. really good program yeah. and, and, and lots of information mm. in there. Mm. I Which was, it was great. Excellent. 
Yeah, I yeah. would have liked to have seen just a little bit more about our native bees, but that, that was fine. I'm mm. actually, <laughs> I hate doing social media. I'm not a social media person. I do it because I have to. Um, and before Christmas, the um, the sub editor of the magazine left, mm. and I was left doing the social media right through. So this is Instagram, oh. Twitter and oh. Facebook. Okay. And so I've, I've been putting up things related to the, this program on the, on the ABC and there's a really good short movie of, of the blue-banded bee head-butting a tomato flower mm. as, up on the Organic Garden Facebook page. Yes. And, um, and I, so I, the sort of stuff that I was being fed to be able to put up on social media suggested there was quite a lot more on native bees than there was so I was a little bit disappointed that there wasn't more but as, as a program about bees and having your own bees the one of the lovely things that came out is some of the best honey actually came from inner city regions yes, yes. So the, which I found the, really surprising yeah, except that the one that won was I think near the botanic gardens yes oh. so the, the bees had access maybe they to, had access to, to some special gardens. some yes. special plants yeah but there is some really good research going on with mm. both honeybees and native bees mm. and and recent research that shows that honeybees um, are actually mathematicians as well, which come, is coming out of RMIT. and okay. um, yeah. Well, so all those hexagons <laughs> yeah, gone to well, their heads. But, but they can sort of add things together. They've mm. worked out and, mm. and work out things. And I just love the fact that they can tell the rest of the honeybees in the hive yeah, exactly where something where is been. by their little yeah. dance. Their little yes. wiggle dance. Their yeah. wiggle dance. Yeah. yeah, just fantastic. It's fabulous. I just love it? that. Yeah. We must get to our next caller. We have uh, Sue out in Narriwara North. Good morning, Sue. Oh, good morning, everybody. It's interesting uh, talking about the bees. I've got a lot of bees because I grow salvias. Ah, yes, ah. indeed. Great and sal- and it's sort food. of a bee-related question, but it's about... A, I hope this is not a stupid question. I have now got a self-sown dahlia in the middle of my asparagus patch. Yeah. Right. I think it's a cross, actually. Do I dig it out or what? Because it's going to have a big tuber in there and it's going to make a mess if I have to dig it out. Do I leave it there or...? Oh, look, I, I think Michelle might have a totally different opinion, but let's, I would do exactly see. what you want to do. If you want to, if you want to have a dahlia in the middle of your asparagus bed, I would leave it there. Um, if you want to dig it out, you're not going to do that much damage and the, no. the asparagus will come back and, and um, so I, you do what suits you. Yeah, because I, have, I, have, I also have a round garden like that one you're talking about and in another bed I've got... I think it's Bishop of Landorf. Oh, yes, yes. And, and one I bought one. from diggers called Cafe or Latte. Yeah, yeah. it's a lovely pale, creamy yellow. Yeah, and, and it's yeah. morphed into about three now. Yeah. But mm. but I think the new one that came up, it's sort of the colouring of Bishop of Landorf, but a little bit bigger leaves than taller. Okay. And, mm. Yeah. You um, might have something special there. It might be worth keeping. Well, I'll <laughs> you, leave it there then. Yeah, you, can, so. you can certainly dig it out um, during the winter too. So once it starts to die down, which won't be too long from now, um, no, no, yeah. you, you could just carefully dig around and take it out. It wouldn't yeah, be a problem. It's yeah, not going yeah. to upset your asparagus, asparagus. plants. Yeah, they're, they're I do get deeper in anyway. Asparagus, I get uh, mm. self-sown sunflowers. So. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and yeah. I just leave them there. I mean, the cockatoos eat them, but yeah. yeah, they have a good feast, yeah. don't they? Yeah. They do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and I must uh, say, tell tell you ladies something that I'm really excited about. I have now got my second and third hand of bananas. Oh, oh well wow. done! Fantastic. Yeah. We have banana envy here now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. And you have you managed to get them through the winter? 
they did get the t- big ones got frosted a little bit last year. It's on the northern end of my chicken house, which is made of metal, yep. so it gets that reflected. I have grown bananas because I have lived in the Northern Territory, mm. and we picked. Uh, one lot last year, but I'd left them too long, so we didn't eat many. But what happened, because we go to a Thai restaurant a lot, um, we took some of the trunk down when uh, we didn't chop it, my gardener did, and the lady made a curry out of the inner core of the... Oh, okay. Fantastic. Yeah, at any rate, we were there uh, the week before last, and then we went uh, Thursday night, and we cut. I cut the second flower off, so I actually took the second... You know how you cut the flower off. Yes, yes. I bell. took it down, and she was going to make a curry out of, of that. that. Fantastic. Nothing wasted, hey? Yeah. At yeah. your place, that yeah. sounds fantastic. Really. Yeah. Good. So she must um, love you coming in. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, well, you know, because when when I've got lemons, I will take them down. But uh, yeah, I'm really because it was only you know you walk past them in Bunnings or wherever, and I thought, oh yeah, I'll put that in and see how it goes, and then it mm. morphed into six. Bananas, Brilliant. and now I've got my second and third. Well uh, done. Hand of bananas coming. That, that is fantastic. You've Just obviously exciting. just got the right spot yeah. for them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fabulous. Well done. Bye. Bye. I've I've grown I've got bananas on my my banana once, but I haven't really? managed it the last two years. But yeah. Um, yeah. So just depends how the, cold the, the winter plants, is for me. Yeah, too. the plants are still there and they're still growing well, mm. um, but they just haven't flowered Flower. for the last two years. But and look, we get very cold in Bragg along. We get down to about minus six several days yeah. in a row, sometimes weeks, yep. weeks in a line. Um, and I can I can do an avocado in a good year. I can yep. get avocado growing. Yep. So, yep. you know, that's good. Have you got yep. avocado? I do have yeah. avocados. Yeah. Yeah. Which is it's exciting. Yes. The, only, the only trouble yeah. is, you know, when the frosts come, it yeah. upsets yes. them a bit. Yeah, yeah. Penny, let's get back to Organic Gardener magazine. Sure. We didn't mention what else was in there. There's a really good article by Helen McCarroll on growing apples in small spaces, so some really good ideas and um, different cultivars that you can use and and natural dwarfs and that sort of thing. Okay. And and apples are so um, obliging in as much as they're very flexible. Yes. So you can actually grow them over... Um, archways or you can espalier them and do really good things. And there's some great stock coming out on dwarf fruit stock as well too. So, yeah. Every year we have uh, Friends of Burnley Gardens, one of our former students, uh, Chris England, who runs a nursery called Mary- Marywood Nursery. He comes yep. and does a couple of sessions for our for our friends people mm. on uh, espalier and growing, in particular, apples Well, he's pears. the guru of espalier, <laughs> isn't he? <laughs> he is, really. And isn't it nice to say, well, he was one of my students. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It had probably nothing to do with his future direction in life, but, but yes, and he, he comes for us and he does these lovely workshops on fruit growing. He, usually there's one in about August and one in mm. December. Mm. So December is a summer pruning one and the August one is the winter pruning one. Yeah. That's worth worthwhile knowing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When those come up. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's hands-on as well, isn't it, it under is. his guidance? Yes, it's hands-on. Yeah. We, we take people down to the former orchard, which is now called the Field Station. Right. But uh, people get down, go, get down there and they have a chance to under his supervision prune and be um, corrected and shown how to do things mm. yes, it's nothing, nothing like actually seeing it done um, different reading in a book but when you actually see oh, it done and yes. are, uh, helped along the way exactly. it makes a huge difference because in a book even if there are photographs they've taken they've, they've, they've got the most classic situation photographed obviously to demonstrate mm. it but when you look at a, you know, a tree it, yourself um, 
You mightn't find those spurs, or you, no. you, know, or you, might, you might know which unsure. one, or yes. Or just still be unsure yeah, as to absolutely. what exactly do they mean by a spur. Yes, you know? exactly. And That's is this a fruiting spur or not a fruiting spur? And Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, wonderful. No, I, it's all you, good. Burnley do some amazing workshops. Throughout the year, um, you know, I know well, you run quite a few different ones. Try to be a bit creative in what we what we're doing. So, but anything. I think it's so essential for the education of of gardeners because mm. um, once you've shown out how, people can get excited and go home and do it, and do. it's. It's wonderful. And, of course, the other thing, the money that's earned goes into the maintenance of, of the of gardens. The gardens yes. We've just put in, um, friends have contributed to a lovely new wisteria arbour. So for those who, of Terrific. you who mightn't have been down to 500 Yarra Boulevard in Richmond for a while, um, the sugar gum table there was donated by the friends and the wisteria arbour has been put in place to restore uh, the okay. old one. Yep. And it's looking abs- We had a, the most beautiful long dinner the other night under the wisteria arbor and it's uh, it's made now out of metal which it mm. wasn't previously it was treated pine so the old treated pine one is gone mm. and the new metal one good beautiful archway is yes. up and it's really really spectacular Fantastic. so you can go to burnley gardens you don't have to be a member of the friends you can just go ro- for a rock up go for a mm. wander take a picnic exactly yep. take a picnic um, even a dog on a leash um, children on leashes no 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 <laughs> <laughs> We do. There are ponds there. There are ponds there. There are ponds. Just yeah. have to be cautious with yeah, little, yeah, yeah. little kids. But it still is a hidden gem. So many people don't realise it's there. I know. Yeah. So it, I mean, it does have the University of Melbourne sign up outside it, and I think perhaps people might maybe think they're intruding. That and they're they intruding. Yeah. But part of the reason why it was um, uh, gazetted all those years ago in 1860, part of the conditions were that the gardens would remain open to the public at all times, mm. except when they have displays or oh, exhibitions yes. or whatever. Yes, yes, yeah. And so that's still part of the obligation mm. of the University of Melbourne that is to open the gardens at all times. Now the field mm these days is locked because there's experiments and and horticultural things yeah, going on down there. Different. But the actual body of the gardens is um, is open to the public at all times. Mm. Beautiful grass areas, lawn areas, lovely tables. Plenty of parking in the boulevard. Really easy parking, to access. Yeah. Particularly weekends. Yes. Um, very easy to access. You can access it by tram down Swan Street and get off uh, at the Botanica. Um, exit just before the Yarra. Mm. So, you know, here we are, 1860, the gardens were first started. It's not long after the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, and you have the most amazing, beautiful, mature trees there. Absolutely. Mm. Really, really mm. fantastic. Yes, yes, great. Okay, let's move on, and we'll go to, uh, let me see, we have uh, Pam in Kyneton. Good morning, Pam. Oh, hello, ladies. I'm sorry to be calling you late. I should have. I've been listening to all your interesting conversation about bees. Right. <laughs> Takes me back to a holiday when I saw the most amazing bees massed up grass stalks out in the outback. Anyway. Oh, right. Okay. Fantastic. Um, I was wanting to ask Penny about my garlic. Um, Penny, I've been go- growing this garlic for a long time now. But I have a lot of problems with it in that when I harvest it, which I'm never sure that I'm doing correctly, I have like, um, it's not rotten, but the cloves are brown. There'll be a little bit of brown on the top of them. Is that rot or is that that I'm leaving them in the ground for too long? Look, it's really hard to know without seeing. Um, if If it's a rot, it will gradually get worse. 
Mm. Um, if you're leaving them in the ground for too long, um, it may be... Usually leaving them in the ground too long just means that you lose the skins and all you end up with is cloves. Right. Um, so usually brown, particularly if it's you're seeing it on the cloves, is to do with a rot which is, which is usually fusarium. Um, but once you've got fusarium, the whole bulb is not edible. So what are you finding um, when you try to use the cloves where, there's, where they're brown? Well, it will be just like over the top of, of one clove, right? Yep. So I've been, some of them I just throw away. Yep. But others I can, if it's only just a tiny bit, I can cut that clove in half and throw half away and use the other half. Yeah. Look, once fusarium gets into a bulb in any, um, um, you know, real amount at all, the whole right. bulb will be tainted. Um, okay. But usually if it's just a very small mark, you can do what, what you've said. Yes. But you really need to be careful about replanting those cloves. It may yes. actually be time to get yourself uh, yes. some new clean cloves yes. and, um, and start growing those if you're yes. getting this year after year. Okay, I've had those, I bought them up here from Melbourne and I've been here nine years now yeah. and I grew them for quite a while yeah. in Melbourne so I've been just on growing my own clothes. Yeah, and so and you need to rotate them into a new position if every three, you know, for over a three year cycle as well. It might be what worth getting them out of the ground to start with and putting them in some of those larger containers so that you don't have the uh, fusarium moving into the soil. It's, yeah, so give yeah. the soil a rest, perhaps. Yeah. What, other, what else would you do for fusarium as a preventative? Um, well, you really, it's really hard to get rid of. Mm. So you basically you don't go back into that soil for three years mm. if, if, that, if it is fusarium. But fusarium can also attack in storage mm. um, and not necessarily in the ground because um, uh. the soil often carries a small amount of fusarium and it's only oh. when the conditions become right for it to start growing that you end up with an issue. Yes. Um, so it, it can be hard to get rid of. and some years it might not be such a big problem and other years it can be a huge problem and you can lose the whole crop so depending on the weather. Penny, sorry to keep you, but in, in um, storage, is it because they're stored incorrectly? or Yeah, not? usually because there's too much humidity. Oh, humidity? Yep. Not damp? Well, that's the same thing. So, oh, so right. too much moisture around, um, yeah. not enough air movement. They need to be secured oh. and stored in a position that's out of direct sunlight, has lots of air movement and doesn't have any humidity. So don't put them in the kitchen or the bathroom. Mm. So um, is that why yeah, people no, plait pla- pla- them and hang them? It's, yeah. it's too damp here. And I stored yeah. them in the shed. Now, this time I've got them stored up the top of my pantry, which is out of the kitchen, but I've still got it. Oh, yeah, you need, it needs to be somewhere more open, I'm afraid. Yeah. Okay, I'm pretty sure it's storage. Yeah. Because yeah. they're fine when I pull them. Okay. And, yeah. yeah, no, it'll be Thank storage. You, no worries. Good luck. You've answered my question. You're fabulous. Thanks for all your advice. <laughs> no worries. Okay, bye. 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 Uh, very quickly, a query from the outside line. Priscilla uh, from East Malvern. Uh, can she plant nasturtiums next to her pur- purple heliotrope? Would it look good and are they good companions? Uh, yes, 
Um, yes and yes, I think. Um, you know, <laughs> yes. nasturtiums, nasturtiums are terrific. I think orange and purple go really well together. With, with the purple and the, yeah. Yes, yeah. And the red. Um, the only thing you'd want to watch a little bit is that the nasturtiums, if they're the spreading ones, don't sort of grow over the top Too of much. the heliotrope. They, they like but a little bit of moisture and a little yeah. bit of shade yep. to some extent, depending yeah. on how much water they get. But they could look really rather charming, yeah. I think. Yeah, and yeah. they're easy to pull out if mm. they do get out yeah. of control. Mm. Yep. So. Okay, we have run out of time for yet another week. A uh, huge thank you to uh, Penny and Michelle for coming in and uh, and uh, sharing all your knowledge and uh, bits and pieces you. with us. Great. Um, and a big thank you too to uh, Liz and to Susie who've been manning the phones for this morning. We will be back again next Sunday morning at 7.30. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.